Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse, thir- verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, hey, Debbie, you get some extra fun this morning. It looks like uh, I am not connecting. I don't know why, but Deb's going to take care of everything. Uh, let me, um, let's just start by reading. I, I would like to start this morning by actually just reading this passage, and then we will dive into it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many, there, there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are and from whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist however not all possess this knowledge but some though formerly associated with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled food will not condemn us to God we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Um, When you hear that passage and we read over it, um, do you ever, there are are many people who who will read that passage and go, well, I don't remember the last time that I've been in a temple and seen a, a meat sacrifice to an idol or when we've ever had a problem like this in our church. Uh, do any of you ever read passages in Scripture and think to yourself, why is this there? How's that going to help us? You know, I've talked to some people. I encourage, I encourage everybody. You've got to read the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it's kind of really cool to see people who start reading the Bible, and they'll read things that they didn't know were in there. And I remember this one individual after reading this passage in the Old Testament, it's like, why is that even there? Why would a story like that be put in the Bible? Uh, why would anybody read this? And that was their reaction. And what I would say is, when we think about this, you know, you think about Jesus when he was being tempted. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We actually need everything in the Bible. And uh, sometimes at first reading, it can be a little confusing. What does this have to do with me? Or uh, we might think, you know, why would this even be in here? But this is one of the things I've discovered. Sometimes I'll read through Scripture 
And, and this has happened to me when I've been assigned to preach a passage. And one time I was assigned to preach this passage, and it was just about, like, the logistical ending of the book. Say hi to this person. Say hi to that person. Uh, I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring this. And I'm just looking at that, and I'm thinking, what in the world <laughs> am I going to say about this? You know, there's some passages that are just so full, and then there's other ones that's like, i got to preach a sermon on that. And one of the things that's been really cool in my life, and I think you will find this to be true in your life, is that when you run across a passage like that, and then you take a step back and you think, no, every single word God put here because I need it. And then when you dig in and you start thinking about what is the significance of these things mentioned? Why was this person's name mentioned? Why was this event described? And as you think about that, actually, one of those passages turned out to be my favorite passage that I've ever had to preach on. And it was just awesome because it, it made me take a step back and just dig in. And we all know this is true, right? I mean, 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You know, some of the folks that I've seen that have ignored the Old Testament, ignored things in Scripture, you see them actually living in a way and doing things that they feel good about. And I just take a step back and I think, okay, this person would never be doing the things that they are doing if they actually thought about what God has said in various passages of the Bible. So for you and I, this passage, I don't know if when I read that you think to yourself, oh, no, that's full, that's awesome, There's a lot of good stuff in there for me. Or if you're going, man, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and I don't know anybody who does, what does that have to do with me? Now, the thing that I want you to know is this is critical because if we don't hear it and understand it and think about it, we won't live rightly in the world. So uh, let's jump into this. And uh, let's just look at our first point. Um, in this passage, we need to recognize and pursue true knowledge. We need to recognize and pursue true knowledge. And here's one of the ways we know what true knowledge is. True knowledge edifies. It builds people up. False knowledge destroys people. And so that's one of the things that we think about as we're learning new things. And as we try to apply those things, we think about, it, are these things that I'm learning, are they helpful? Are they building people up or do they destroy? And that's one of the things that we're going to see here. So the historical context, let me just read this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, I'm going to look at that again. It just says, now concerning food offered to idols. So the Corinthian church has been struggling. God saves them from this pagan community, this wicked city. And then as they're living their Christian life, we know that they're having all these conflicts. Uh, Satan is working in the church to produce a disunity and conflict and people being against each other. And, and Paul writes to them, and he says, don't do that. And then he gives them instructions. And some of the things that they were having controversy over, they actually wrote Paul and asked him questions like, how do we deal with marriage? And we just went through that in chapter 7. And then this is another big thing that they were struggling with. Hey, we have a bunch of people in the church that have been saved, and we have a different view about how this issue should be handled. So, Paul, what do we do? 
And so they're asking this question about food offered to idols. And actually, this is one of the cool things. If you just read chapter 8, it actually explains what their issue was. So there's this knowledge. We'll come back to that. But if you look at verse 4, what is this thing that they're struggling with in verse 4? Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no real God. There is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, from the, the Father, from whom, all things, um, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ. So basically what's happening is people are eating food offered to idols, and there's a lot of people who say, you know, an idol is actually not a real thing. So if we can go to the store and we can get meat that was sacrificed to an idol, and if it's cheaper, we should save money. Let's just buy that. Let's eat it because idols are not a real thing. So that's what some of the, that's the knowledge that Paul's talking about when he says all of us have this knowledge, the understanding that an idol is not a real thing. And then he goes on and he talks about where this is a problem in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So he's saying that, yes, it's true. Idols are not a real thing. But there are people who have spent their whole life worshiping a false god, worshiping a false idol. And so when they eat food, they're thinking, wait, this, this food, it's like, it's eating this as part of worshiping an idol. This, this food, the fact that it was sacrificed to an idol and used in an idolic worship service, um, if I eat that, I'm participating in this sinfulness. It's like a person who would, who would like see if they, like, I remember when I was new here and uh, I was talking about some satanic things, you know, talking about Satan, his plan for the world. And I put a verse up on the Bible, up on the screen from the satanic Bible. And there was some people in the church going, okay, that's weird. I've never been in a church that's putting the satanic Bible up on the screen. And that, that was not a negative thing, you know. But there are people who think, oh, man, that's an evil thing. That brings with it evil. Well, I've got to stay away from that. I don't, I don't want to be impacted by that evil thing. Or people who are afraid of houses. Oh, this is a demon-possessed house. I can't go in there. Or this, this was a house that this, you know, um, some sat Satan worshiper lived in. And so it's, there's all this demons and evil in this house. And if I go in that house, somehow I'm going to be affected by these bad things. And Paul's just saying there are some people because they are so steeped in that and they've spent their whole life living that, they actually think wrongly about it. And they think that those things are real. And so when they eat meat, sacrificed to an idol, they think they are participating in idol worship. And so their conscience is defiled. And if you convince them to eat that and they violate their conscience, they're sinning. And that's why he says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so if you have this knowledge about things and you're just like, oh, you're dumb, I'm so smart, I know these things, and you apply your knowledge in a way that hurts somebody. And in this passage, that is causing somebody to do something that they think is a sin. And if you do that, this passage says, 
you are destroying that person. And so that's the whole thing when he's talking about this knowledge. And that's a historical context. So let's think about this. Um, do any of you see idols? I do want to put this in a modern-day context. Um, I, I, I love Thai food. <laughs> I go to Thai food restaurants all the time. And it started when I was in college. And there was this restaurant owner that had a Thai food restaurant. And everybody, I went to a Christian college, and all of us would go eat at that restaurant. And our goal when we went there, first of all, this, this restaurant owner's like, man, I'm getting a ton of business from this Christian college. That's awesome. She was so happy every time she saw one of us walk in the door. But we were all praying for her. We were all trying to encourage her. And we were all looking for opportunities to share the gospel with her. It was like our school just adopted this place. And one of the things I noticed when I went there is she had a Buddha up on a shelf. And uh, the Buddha, they would put rice there and they would put some of the food there. And one of the things I would do in my sharing of the gospel with her is, uh, is we started all kinds of conversations. And sometimes it would just be me and a friend and her in this restaurant. And so I would just try to bring up conversations and share the gospel with her, talk to her about things. But one of the things I said to her one day while I was buying the food, I was like, hey, I noticed you got Buddha up there. And there's rice in front of him. And I just said to her, um, how come he never eats it? And, um, and then and she had these symbols on the door. And I said, What's, so what is that symbol? What does that symbol mean? And she goes, well, that's a symbol to my God to bring back the good customers. So every time a good customer walks through the door, this symbol was going to make good customers come back. Now, what if there's a person from Thailand and they become a Christian and that's the way they lived? And after becoming a Christian, they reject that. They will have nothing to do with Buddha. When they, when they go somewhere and they see Buddha or they see these symbols on the doors, like that to them represents their, their life of idol worship. And they would be saying, I am not going to walk through the door of that restaurant because that would be telling her that the idol on the door is working because I'm a good customer, so I will not go there. I am not going to go to this restaurant where the owners are worshiping Buddha and where they're doing these things, and I am not going to participate in that kind of evil. Now, for me, um, that's not how I see that. I realize that that Buddha is nothing. I realize that this idol on the door actually does nothing. But if I say to that person, hey, look, we're all going. Come on. That's ridiculous. Let's just go. And this person feeling like that is worshiping an idol, that is participating in evil, they feel like it's wrong, but because me and all my friends are, are pressuring this fellow student of ours to go, then they go and they eat that food and they feel like they've sinned. What this passage says is that we, this group of friends with good intentions that understands that idols aren't real, have destroyed this brother or sister in Christ whom we have encouraged to violate their conscience. There are all kinds of those types of issues that we face. Drinking alcohol, not drinking alcohol. Can you go into a restaurant and sit in the bar area or not sit in the bar area? Can you smoke a cigarette? What about smoking um, a cigar while you're going around a golf course? 
Um, there, there are so many. What about watching movies that have profanity in them? What about watching movies that have other things in them that wouldn't be honoring God? Hey, Halloween's coming up, right? What about participating in Halloween? You know, I know a lot of people who would say, if you participate in Halloween, you are celebrating evil. That is a wrong thing for you to do. No Christian should ever decorate for Halloween, should ever hand out candy at Halloween. And then you'll have somebody else who would say, no, <laughs> Halloween is nothing. We're going to participate, and we certainly are not going to have our kids dress up like goblins or demons. or We're not going to participate in evil in that sense. No way. We would never do that. But this is a chance for us to go knock on the door of every single one of our neighbors and get to know them and pray for them with the purpose of evangelizing them. There are many of these kinds of situations that we face and if we don't understand this passage and what Paul is teaching here, we are going to harm ourselves. We're going to harm our Christian testimony. We're going to cause other people to violate their conscience, thus sinning against other people. So this is really an important thing. So all of us, it says all of us possess this knowledge. Paul is like, in a sense, he's saying to them, you guys think you're so smart and you think you know everything, but there's something wrong with what you know because the way that you're applying it is harmful. And true knowledge is never harmful. And it says this, notice it doesn't say knowledge puffs up. Have you ever heard this verse quoted? Knowledge puffs up. Let's all be dumb. Let's all not know anything because if we know anything, we'll be prideful. Um, I've heard people say when they're talking about ministry, no pastor should ever go to seminary because people go into seminary with a great heart and they come out of seminary in a really bad condition, prideful, arrogant. You know, they're actually damaged by studying <laughs> scripture. Um, you know what? Knowledge does not puff up, but this knowledge puffs up. And that is actually one of the challenges. Every time anybody starts learning something new, anytime anybody goes to seminary, all of a sudden they start learning this stuff. And they start to feel, I'm so smart. I know so much more than everybody else. One of the things that was super amazing to me when I was in seminary is how gracious and how humble and how incredibly brilliant uh, my seminary professors were. Uh, I, I didn't have one that was prideful. <laughs> in fact, I was doing some research and writing this paper for some paper I had to write in this professor's class. And as I'm doing research on it, I found an article on my topic written by my professor. And it was written by him and published <laughs> before I was born. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, this guy's been doing this for a long time. I had this Hebrew professor. We'd be sitting in class and we'd be talking about some Hebrew thing. And he would start citing, like in class, off the top of his head. Somebody would ask a question. He'd say, oh, yeah, that's in Waldkin O'Connor on page this page and with this, this paragraph number. Like this guy just off the top of his head is quoting just these amazing details that I'm just thinking, man, I could barely remember what verse it is and where it is in the Bible. And, and this guy is just so brilliant, but he was so humble. And what was crazy is sometimes sitting in class with students, 
that would be arrogant toward the professor, that would feel like they knew more than him, like they learned something, they would try to correct him. <laughs> I'm just thinking, dude, I think you should realize that he's teaching the class and you are a student for a reason. Probably if you're correcting him, there's something you're misunderstanding. And that's what the Apostle Paul says here. True knowledge doesn't tell, tear people down. And so that's something that we all need to understand and that we need to be careful of. It is a great thing to study and learn. But anytime we do that, there comes with it a potential pitfall. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So Paul's talking specifically about this situation. You know, um, when you're prideful, when you tear other people down, that's not the knowledge that God intends you to have. Um, truth, love, and benefit always go together. Love is not love without truth. Truth is not truth without love. So when you find one of those things by themselves, you know it's not what it should be. Now, somebody could hear this and just think, okay, um, knowledge, true knowledge always edifies. That means that the application of true knowledge will always make everybody happy. They'll always like it. If somebody's unhappy, then there must be something wrong. Think that's true? I mean, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5? He says, if you love that guy, kick him out. I don't think that guy liked it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes back and says, when I told you to do that, it broke my heart. I was sad that a person had to be told to be kicked out. I was brokenhearted for this man that needed to be kicked out. Um, what about in your parenting? As you love your kids and give them truth, do they always like it? I mean, no, right? Hebrews 12 says that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you're looking at somebody's life and there's not righteousness in it, they need truth and they need love. Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you be tempted. But it doesn't mean that we run around trying never to hurt anybody's feelings. Sometimes we say things. The Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so love always builds up. Truth always builds up. And that does not mean that those things are always pleasant. However, in this situation, they were not being kind or gracious or encouraging or helpful. They were actually causing another person to sin. They were not rightly causing pain. They were sinfully destroying a brother or sister in Christ. And in verse 3, it just says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the Apostle Paul is just going to talk to them, and, he's, and basically that phrase just means, first of all, if you love God, you're going to obey God. That's all through Scripture. And the second thing is that if you love God, you're known by him. That is just saying Christians are known by God. Um, that's talking about that personal, intimate relationship. So here's the second thing that we see is that um, we worship the one true God only. 
It's one of the things that we see here. And this was the dilemma, is you have believers saying, no, we are worshiping God by the fact that we recognize that idols aren't real and we know that only God is real. The fact that we recognize that allows us to eat meat sacrificed by idols. As a faithful, mature believer, I eat meat sacrificed to an idol because I know that idols are nothing. And then you have another person who says, no, I worship the only true God. There is absolutely no chance I would ever participate in evil by eating meat sacrificed by idols. So you have these two people who are both saying, I am committed to worshiping God wholeheartedly. I will not step into sinfulness. And one person they're saying, that means I can eat it. And the other person saying, that means I can't eat it. And so that's what he's talking about here. And we'll see that. Therefore, verse 4, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. And then he talks about Jesus and says Jesus created everything and Jesus made people, or God the Father created everything and made people. And then he says, and Jesus, who uh, made everything and created people. Do you see how in this verse... Jesus and God are both talked about as the one God. They are both described exactly the same way. If you want to prove the deity of Christ, this is the verse. This is one of I mean, there's many, but this is one of those verses that you would go to. And he says here in the beginning of verse 6, yet for us there is one God. So we only worship one God. So one of the things for us to understand, uh, we are not afraid of voodoo dolls. You know, like there's people that, we are not superstitious. If, if I buy a couch, a used couch, and as I'm cleaning it out, I find some, you know, satanic symbol in it. I don't go, oh, no, what is going to happen? I've had this satanic symbol in my house. And then I start thinking about all the things that have gone wrong in life. And I think, oh, that's because of this. i got to get it out of my life. Yeah, somebody got sick, and this happened, and that happened. It must be because there was this evil symbol in our house. Or missionaries that go away, and all the witch doctors are, like, making little voodoo dolls and poking them with things. No missionary is afraid of that at all. They don't care because they're not real, and there's no power in those things. They're not superstitious. But also, there is no participation in that from a believer at all. If you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 through 19. This is Paul. This is God. Not Paul. This is Isaiah. This is God talking about idols and how to think about idols. And this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. The Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is none like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set forth um, before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. One of the reasons that we know that there's only one God, and one of the ways God proves that he's who he is, is he makes predictions. He tells things about the future. God is the only one who can do that, who can tell about the future. Because God holds the future in his hands. Satan and demons don't know the future except that they read the Bible. They know what it says. And so they can uh, predict things that God has said will happen because they have the Bible just like you and I do. But they don't know the future. 
Verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither sees nor knows that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Like, who would do that? And yet God's talking to Israel who does it. And I want to just tell you, there are many people who call themselves Christians who without realizing do this. Or sometimes they do realize it. Verse 11, behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them all stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Worshiping idols is a bad idea. Let's look at verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it, o- works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers, works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and he's faint. So just think, hey, think about idols. There's a guy who goes to build that idol and he's doing all this hard work to try to make an idol and he's not eating and he's getting tired and his arm's tired. He's got to sit down and rest. Um, did God, does God get tired when he does things? Does God need to sleep? I mean, no. But here's a human being making this thing. And then it says, verse 13, the carpenter, so that's the guy who makes idols out of metal. or some people who do it out of wood. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house and he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it and then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself and he kindles a fire and bakes bread and he also makes a god and worships it. He might makes an idol and falls down before it. Okay, let's chop down a tree. Let's throw half of it in there. Let's cook our food over it and burn it. Let's take the other half and let's make it into a shape and then let's fall down before it and worship it. Does that seem ridiculous to you? Like, do we worship the God who created the world or do we make something and then worship that thing? Half of it, verse 16, he burns in the fire. Over half of it, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into his God, his idol. He falls down to it. He worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Like he makes a piece of wood and then says, save me to this piece of wood that he made. They do not know. They do not discern. He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. That's God talking about people who do that. The people who do this make idols and then worship them. God is blinding them because of their rebellion against him. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or any discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, and I baked bread on its coals, and I roasted meat, and I have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination, and I should fall down and worship before a block of wood. So... Um, we know that there's no real God other than God the Father. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. He's talking about the same topic, and this is what he does say. Is worshiping those things just an exercise in ignorance? I mean, let's worship God. Yes, we should do that. And if we also worship idols, is that kind of just like a dumb thing that we shouldn't do? 
Is that just like a mistake? Is it like fruitless? I mean, this is a good thing, but if I do both, I'm just wasting my time over here. Is that all it is? And what I would tell you, that is not all that it is. It is actually evil, it is wicked, and it is sinful to look to things that God has made as those those have some kind of help, power, or usefulness for us. It is evil and sinful to take things that only belong to God and to attribute those to someone else or something else. That is evil. And this is what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians 10, 19. He says, what do I apply, imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's saying, no, I'm not applying that. Of course that's not true. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So if you are involved in idolatry, <laughs> in a few minutes, I'm going to throw up a list of some things that may touch some people in this room. And if so, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> okay? I have no intention of hurting anybody's feelings or offending, offending anybody. But as Christians, we have welcomed and invited, some people as Christians have welcomed and invited satanic, sinful things into their lives. We need to make sure that we don't do that in any way. Totem poles, and we think that it applies to those th situations. No, here in Mission Viejo and RSM, you can go find palm readers. Know anybody who does tarot cards? Same thing. Um, what about mediums? I have a family member who says they're a Christian, says they believe in God. In fact, Reagan's wife did this, who was supposedly a Christian, going to a medium, somebody who can help you talk to the dead, somebody who's thinking about the dead, wanting wisdom from the dead, wanting to work some things out, some problems, finding out some things. Somebody who, man, they, their, their grandmother had this really valuable treasure and she died without telling them where it is. Can you bring somebody back from the dead? Can we talk to my grandma so she can tell me where this thing is? Um, horoscopes, do you know what your sign is? Um, that is the same thing. Thinking that the time of year I was born, what stars were over me when I was born, determine my personality and who I should be with and who I shouldn't be with. Now, you're not an evil, satanic person if you know what your sign is. Like, that's the kind of thing we could just learn being in this culture. But I will tell you this, it is demonic and it is satanic if you ever give any attribution to those things. Oh, hey, what sign are you? That's why we're good friends. Oh, they're having marital conflict. Well, what sign are you and what sign are you? Oh, that's why you guys are con having conflicts. All of that is satanic and evil. Anything that brings you good luck, that's satanic and evil. Do you guys have lucky things? Now, <laughs> I wanna throw something out there about this. So, you guys don't know this. But I have three favorite pairs of socks, and they're American flag socks. And I only wear them on Sundays, and I try to wear them every Sunday. And it's because I like them. Yeah, you want proof? Check it out. Red, red, white, and blue socks. You know, the, the blue's underneath my shoe. Um, 
So I wear those every week. But, you know, I just wear it because I like it. Sunday's a special day. I like to wear my favorite things. Can I tell you what I don't do? Oh, no, I forgot to wear my, my socks. I'm going to preach a bad sermon today. Something's going to go wrong in church. You guys are, if you're going, Raj, you're wearing your socks, you know, make sure you wear your socks on Sunday. If you attribute any help from anything like that in your life, that is satanic. Um, there's nothing wrong with enjoying things and liking things. How about this? Do you wear a cross? Now, here's the deal. Um, I would wear a cross. I'm not against wearing a cross. When I see it, it's a conversation piece. It's something that sometimes I talk to other people about if they're wearing a cross. Hey, what does that mean to you? Or if I wear a cross, it reminds me of Jesus and the fact that he died for me. It's not wrong to have a cross, but I will tell you this. If while I'm driving around, I think that cross is helping me, um, that's a problem. That's actually demonic and satanic. Um, People sometimes bring their Bible with them. Because they think that with having their Bible, it will help them. Or I know people who have been having trouble, and they can't sleep, and they're having nightmares, so they put a Bible under their pillow before they go to sleep. That is demonic and satanic to do that. Um, You want to know what else is? Um, There's people who carry around saints, like the worship of saints, praying to saints, Um, talking to the dead, expecting to have help. That is satanic. That is not just foolish. It's not just wrong. It is satanic. Um, Praying to Mary is satanic. I know people who go to church regularly who pray to Mary. That is not just a foolish thing to do. That is a satanic thing to do. And so if as believers... We don't look at life realizing that God holds life in his hands. Not some symbol, not some image, not some religious thing. Now, okay, Um, all of these things, you want to know why so many people struggle with this stuff? Because they don't read the Bible. Um, You want to know what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4? So in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel's going out to fight this battle, and they're losing. So you want to know what they do? They go get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is this golden box, and actually, if we understand it correctly, it is God's throne. So in the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant that sits there, and God is like, that's God's throne. And God has talked about how it's to be moved, and there's a story in David's life where they take this, this, um, this throne, which is the Ark of the Covenant, that um, is only supposed to be carried by a priest. Like, we've all seen that in the ancient world, right, where the, the king is in this little thing, he's sitting in there, and then you have these people that carry it, right? You want to know what you've never seen in movies? Is somebody taking a king on his throne and sticking him in the back of a cart and pulling him down the street. That doesn't happen. People carry the king. And God said priests and only priests can carry the ark. And at one point they just took it, they threw it in the back of a cart, and it was stumbling. And as it started to stumble, this guy went over and touched it, and God killed him for touching it. So that's the ark. And that happened after the story I'm going to tell you in 1 Samuel 4. But in 1 Samuel, everybody understood how incredible this was, how powerful it was, how significant it was, because it represented God. It was his throne. 
It was to be, and so what Israel did when they lost this battle is they said, hey, let's go get the ark. Now let's bring the ark. It'll be our superstitious thing. The ark will bring us victory. Now, why were they losing in their war? Because they weren't honoring God in their life. But they thought, you know, we're not going to fix that problem. Let's just go get our good luck charm and let's bring that. And so they take it and they're killed. Um, and it's like totally devastated. And the Philistines end up getting the ark. And um, did that good luck charm help them? Actually, um, that's the time that God executed Eli's sons. Remember we talked about the wickedness of Eli's sons? That's where God executes Eli's sons is in that battle. And Eli's sitting on a chair, and when he hears that the ark of God has been taken, he falls over backwards and breaks his neck. That's when God kills Eli too for treating him with irreverence. Now, if you read your Bible and you read that story, Will you ever be tempted to put the Bible under your pillow because you're having nightmares? No. But people who are ignorant of what God has said do all kinds of terribly sinful things without realizing the significance of what they're doing. And so Paul is just saying here, we don't do that because there is only one God for us. And then he's going to go on and he's going to explain the rest of these things. That we are to guard our conscience and we are to guard the conscience of others. And even if somebody misunderstands something, we do not encourage them to sin. This is the third thing. Guard your conscience and the conscience of others. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, the, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we eat. You know, Paul doesn't say if people don't understand that idols aren't real, don't tell them. That is not what he says here. Um, we are to inform our own conscience. If you think things are sinful that are not sinful, you need to read the Bible. Uh, there's people that when they do the right thing, they feel bad. And when they do the wrong thing, they feel good. So I'm going to give one simple illustration. People, parents, they'll discipline their kids. Or it could be spiritual leaders in a church taking a stand against sin. And often when you discipline your kids or where you take a stand against sin, like in 1 Corinthians 5, you feel bad. You feel like you did something wrong. That is not wrong. That is right. And then there's other people. I talked to this other parent, and he just says, let me tell you how much I love my kids. I give them whatever they want. And he feels good about that. That is not good. That is wrong. The Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it's the way of death. In Proverbs, where it talks about prostitutes, it says she licks her lips after engaging in this prostitution and says, I have done no wrong. There are people whose consciences are broken, and they, when they do the, the right thing, they feel bad. When they do the wrong thing, they feel good. We don't do that. We inform our conscience. We educate ourselves. We don't live based on our feelings. We live based on what God says. And we need to do that for ourselves, and we need to also help others. But we don't encourage people to do things that they believe are wrong. 
Look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And then this is actually a super important thing to pay attention to right here because there's something significant for us and as we think about other people. It says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. I want you to think about this. You encourage a person to violate their conscience, you have destroyed them. Um, so do you know what violating your conscience is? It's sinning. It's doing something that you think is wrong. So it's like a little kid who goes to his grandma's house and she's decided, hey, I want to give my grandkid 100 bucks. So he drops $100 on the table. She puts it there. Little kid comes in, doesn't know grandma's given that to him. So he looks over at it and he sees it and he's like, I want that money. So he steals it, puts it in his pocket. Did he really steal anything? I mean, yes, he thinks he's stealing even though his grandmother was going to give that to him. And so when people do things that are wrong, when, they did, when somebody does something they think is wrong, it is wrong. If you violate your conscience, I had a conversation with a person not actually this year who was describing something that they were going to do, and they just said, you know, I, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And actually I was sitting there thinking to myself, Actually, I don't think that's wrong. So what I said was I'm not going to actually comment on the right or wrongness of what you're doing, but I'm going to say this. You should not sin because you think it's better for you. And I just addressed that issue. If you think th something's a sin, it is a sin. We don't violate our conscience. And here's the other thing to learn about this is that when you sin, you destroy yourself. When a person sins, they're destroying themselves. When we read scripture and we see sin and God says not to do stuff, we can have a tendency to just think it's not that important. No, it is important to obey God. And the Bible tells us obviously in Matthew 18, 6, that if you cause somebody to sin, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. So we're people who need to be careful about that. Romans 14, 14, uh, just so you know, I didn't make this stuff up about the conscience. <laughs> I'm going to read you a verse about it. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in it is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever it proceeds from, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So how does Paul say we should think about this? He, he does it in one, in one verse, verse 13. He says, put other people's needs above your own. Um, and this is what he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Um, how serious is sin in your life and how serious is sin in someone else's life that as believers we have one purpose, in my heart and in my conscience, I love and honor the Lord, and I have one purpose in the life of the people around me, and that is to encourage them and to help them
to live for the Lord. And so Paul says, I'll set aside anything I have to set aside. So you know what? Thai food may be my favorite food. But I'm hanging out with somebody that I know has an issue with that. I'll tell you right now, I am not going to a Thai food restaurant. Um, I'm sitting around my house. I don't have a problem drinking a glass of wine. I don't. I'm hanging out with somebody that being in that environment might cause them to violate their conscience. I am not going to serve wine. I am not going to drink wine. I've gone to places where everybody's drinking wine. And I know that there is a person who has a conviction about not drinking. I sit next to that person and I don't drink wine because I don't want them to be the only person at the table not drinking wine. Because whether or not I drink wine or whether or not I eat something or whether or not I do something is way less important than somebody else's spiritual well-being. And so when you think about this whole passage, what's Paul saying? Love God and obey him. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them. That's the message. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. It's so powerful. It is very applicable to us. Lord, it is so easy to be self-centered and selfish and to just think about what we want to do or what we desire and to not consider the well-being of others. God, I pray that we would never have a knowledge that puffs us up and destroys other people. God, help us to be humble, help us to be thankful when we learn, but to always bring humility with that. And God, I pray too that you would give us the willingness and the wisdom to trust everything that you say and to just simply obey in your name. Amen.